0: As we have navigated our way through the book of Hebrews over the latter few weeks, and we've kind of lodged at a couple of places in the past, my attention turned earlier in the week to a few words of Scripture that are kind of scattered throughout the book of Hebrews. That are words that, if I can use this this way to describe them, they're akin. They're 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 kind of kin. They're they're similar words. They're not exact, but they're used in similar situations to describe something that the book of Hebrews, that it seems that the author of the book of Hebrews is sharing with us as he is going through this process of sharing with the Hebrew believers, remember, remember to warn them not to fall back to that, that antiquated, if I use that word, or if that completed work of, that completed work of worship through the judicial law of Moses, the Mosaic law, to not fall prey, They were being tempted, being brought under the bondage of possibly going back. Now, he uses a word. I want you to, they're going to show Hebrews 8 and 5, and it's also in 10 and 1. But in 8 and 5, there are three words that are akin. There's two other words in the scriptures that I want you to see real quickly. Here he says, who serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things. As Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle, for see, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern showed to thee in the mount. Tenth chapter, first verse, if we can, real quickly. As the author then says, for the law having, here's the word shadow again. The word shadow in Greek is shade. It's not the very image, it's the shade of it. You know, if you've seen a shadow of somebody, you can remember the 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 old fairy tale, uh, children's fairy tale, Peter Pan was trying to capture his shadow. And, you know, you can see somebody's shadow, but that's not, that's them, but it's just not them, okay? He's saying that the law was a shadow of a good thing yet to come. It was not the very image. Now, if you study this in the book of Hebrews, there are five words that are common and they're used in multiple passages the word shadow figure similitude example and pattern it's a great thought for us just very briefly this morning real quickly just real quickly the shadow of things to come so we've been talking about the law of Moses he's writing them to say, to say look you have, you have worshipped in the law of Moses. You were brought up in the law of Moses. And you only arrived at the conclusion that Christ's blood finished the blood, finished the atoning sacrifices. There's no more need for another sacrifice. And now he's reminding them that these were a shadow. They had value, but they were a shadow. Now, he uses another word, figure. And the word figure in the Greek is parable, actually. And it's the very same word that's used to describe Jesus' stories that he told during his ministry. Remember how he taught the people in what? In what? Parables. He taught the people in parables. And so uh, when he would teach the people in parables, he had an objective behind it. His objective was to create a picture image in the minds of the people in order to learn because that's very important. How many of you learn visually? So Jesus would teach and he would say something like, what shall we liken the kingdom of God to? He even said that in one of the gospels. What shall we co- compare it to? He said it's compared to a net that's cast into the sea. He said it's compared to a seed that's sown into the ground. Now how many of you believe that when he's teaching in that common uh, you know, usage of a parable that that immediately put a picture image in the mind of the people? Right? It did. And it would for you as well. Especially if you're familiar with that culture, agricultural. When he said, a uh, sower went forth to sow. This is Mark 4. sower goes forth to sow. Well, that image immediately is created in the mind of the listener. They know what it's like to see a farmer in the field with a bag over his arm, reaching his hand in and sowing seed into the field. They know what it's like to see the bird, the fowl of the air, to come and try to eat it up. So immediately these images. What my observation is, is that the author is taking going to great uh, lengths to say this right here, that all of the law, all of the sacrifices, everything that they had been familiar with through Judaism to include both the tabernacle and the temple was in essence a parable. It was an image, it was a portrait of that which is yet to come. That which, which was Christ was certainly the portrait that was being painted. But, and so if you can just kind of contemplate that for just a moment. It was a shadow. It was an example. It resembled. It was uh, the word example in, in Greek means a, an exhibit. Uh, the word pattern means a die, a struck, or a stamp, that you know like a stamp in iron, an example of this, of this. And the book of Colossians was writing about the meat and the drink and the sacrifices and the holy days, all the things that are akin to Judaism. Now remember, it's hard for you to understand this message if you don't have uh, some measure of working knowledge of Judaism. And so the writer of Colossians is talking about the holy days and the feasts and the sacrifices and everything else. And he concluded in Colossians 2 and 16, he said, They are a shadow of things to come, but the body, the real entity is Christ. They were a shadow, but he is the real entity. Christ is. Paul kind of extended it similarly when he said in the book of Galatians, he said these words, he said, which are an analogy. He said this is an analogy and so he said the law was our schoolmaster; it pointed us to Christ so look and think with me for just a moment so all the things that you're familiar with when you have taken the time to study the Old Testament Exodus and Numbers and Leviticus and Deuteronomy and you've seen the, the sacrifices of the, of the ancient world I want you to know that God was using those practices that the Hebrew people were so consistent with to paint a portrait of the coming of the Messiah so that the people when he did come they could recognize him they could recognize him because they had seen just bits and pieces of him revealed through their sacrificial system for thousands of years now to go just a little bit further with this this was so important so important because when you consider that the gospel first went to the Jew Jesus and his disciples first preached to the Jew now I want you to think with me for just a moment down the Emmaus road down the Emmaus road when Jesus, he withheld his identity to his disciples, their countenances has fallen because they believe that Jesus has died and they don't know that he's yet resurrected. And he comes up behind them and he begins to talk with them. And as he talks to them, he asks them, and I've got to speed up just very quickly, but he said, you know, why, why are you this way? And they expound because we believe Jesus was the king and now he's dead and now they're saying he's alive. And he said, oh, slow to believe everything that the prophets have said. Everything that was written in the law of Moses. And the Bible says beginning right there, it's almost like he said this. All right, let's go back and look at the picture. Let's go back and look at the picture that you've been looking at since you were a small child. And I want you to see that every image that's been cast in your mind through the practices of the the law and the sacrifices were painting a picture of Christ. Now, when you think about studying Christ that way, you think, well, I don't see the value in that. But at the conclusion, at the conclusion of their experience with Christ, here's what those two men said about looking at Jesus through the shade, the shadow, the type, the, uh, the parable, if you will, through the pattern, through the example of the law. Here's what they said. Did not our hearts burn within us when he talked to us along the way? Now, I want you to know, if you will ever become studious enough to begin to look intently at the death of Jesus Christ through the shadow, the shade, the image that was given to us by the sacrificial system of the Jewish people, your faith will be strengthened at a depth that you have never known previously. You will be like those two men down the Emmaus Road. You will say, my heart does burn within me. My heart did burn within me when I saw him revealed through those images. This type of preaching is called types and anti-types. It's called shades or shadows. And I'm going to share with you a little bit more today. And we're going to open this thought for just a few moments. And my desire is, is that these things will burn in your heart as well. I want to pick up a thought, something that is a random thought, but I have a purpose behind it. Have you ever considered, now you, if you've never been to Israel, but maybe you haven't, but everybody that goes to Israel, a major part of the tour is to visit the place or the supposed place where Jesus was crucified and was resurrected. How many believe you say, if I went there, that's where I want to go, right? Now, Destiny and Dr. Brassfield and some of the others just recently came back and, and it's always part of the highlight of the trip, I'm sure. It's the highlight of our trip and we'll be highlighting it briefly today. Now, I want to share with you today, is there a thought that you and I can say, okay, the place where he was crucified and his resurrection, does it have a certain connection to the law that I maybe have never considered previously? And can it be a shade and can it be something that God uses to cause my heart to burn within me a revelation of Jesus Christ and who he is and what he did for us through his sacrificial death on the cross? Let me tell you, there's nothing greater to heal your heart than looking at Jesus and his death on the cross. Nothing can heal. You say, Pastor, it's so brutal. Yes, it is. But when you see the love that he had for you and the love that he had for the Father, that he would endure such sacrifice. Come on. Right, so that you and I, come on, that from the cross of Calvary he could pray a prayer that echoes all throughout eternity. Father, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. When you look closely at that word right there, I'm telling you, all of the other issues of life that you may be dealing with can be laid aside for a few short moments of time, and you can bask in the revelation of what he's accomplished. The traditional site, the traditional site of where Jesus is crucified and was resurrected is known to us as the Church of the Holy Sepulcher. I'm going to give you a little image of it here today. You probably can't see it that well. Now, that really, if you're, you know, certainly from a um, Protestant background, when you think of Jesus' death and his burial and his resurrection, how many of you say you don't really think of that right there? Does that, does that, you don't think of, I mean, I have the picture of a hillside. I have a picture image of, um, you know, a hewn stone. I, I, had, I had those images and I'm, I, I'm over, we go there and we discover that. You go inside this place. Now, this place was, if I can just give you, this is difficult for me because, as you all know, I'm not a historian. I'm certainly more uh, limited in, in being able to share this. But it was the Roman Emperor Constantine that in 325 had a supposed conversion by images in the sky that caused him to become what's known as the first Christian emperor. And in 326, he authorized his mother, Helena, to go to the land of Israel to search out the site that he believed where Jesus Christ was buried, was, was first crucified and also buried and subsequently raised from the dead. Now, the story goes like this, that he had had visions and dreams. She had supposedly had some visions and dreams. And she arrives there, and she searches out a Jew that will take her to a a supposed site. And they, they search it out, and because they had believed that the Emperor Hadrian, 135 A.D., had authorized a temple to a pagan goddess Venus to be built over what was supposedly the site of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And the supposed ideology was is that that Hadrian was angry against the Christians and he wanted to desecrate the site, so he built this pagan temple. And so they dug underneath the temple and then they discovered what they believed was the place for the cross where it was set in the stone which we saw with our own eyes and also the resurrection and the tomb and all those things and inside that building it's a large building you can't see it right here are those two places and it's celebrated by many people all around the world as the site it's called the traditional site of Jesus' death burial and resurrection it's called the church of the holy sepulcher now for thus those of us that were not from that type of eastern culture it was a very morbid place Just to be, I'm just being honest, it was. It was just very dark and dreary and there's priests with robes and there's lights and candles and all kinds of things and and it's just, it was a very awkward place. So then in the 1800s, there's another site, okay, there's another site that is known as Gordon's Calvary. Most Protestants respond better to Gordon's Calvary and some of the greatest experiences that we had in Israel were found in that brief time that we were there on that particular day. It was because a a general out of the the English army had gone to Israel in the mid to to late 1800s to search out because there was great interest in their culture and that day of the, of some of the the, the you know the, the Jewish culture that was now, uh, they were having access to because of their control of the Pal- of Palestine, they were now having access to the Jewish culture and they were studying out. And so he, didn't, he had visited first the Church of the Holy Sepulcher and he didn't believe that that was the place where Jesus was uh, crucified. And he got up one morning and looked out of this window of the motel where he, or he was staying or the lodging he was staying and he saw right here the image in the rock and this is, was one area. Now erosion is, has left a lot of it kind of lacking, and this is not the full image of it to this day. And this is what he saw, and it was there that he said, there, there is where my Lord was crucified. And so they began to excavate, and they searched around, and next, roll the next screen if you will quickly. They also found, just across from it, they found a garden area, or the signs of where a garden had been, and they found this tomb and we were privileged to visit this tomb and it was there that Dr. Brassville and Jojo and uh, Shane were able to go in together as a group and Shane led them in the song Jesus Christ lay death in the grave and they came out and there wasn't a dry eye amongst them they had experienced the presence of Christ right there in that rock hewn chamber wasn't that powerful would not that been a powerful experience oddly enough I didn't get to go in with them I was stuck with the Presbyterians <laughs> So, nonetheless, their experience was greater than mine, we'll just say that. So, now, what's kind of unique about this place is there is a Messianic Jew, or is one of the tour guides that gives you, uh, uh, you know, he shares about both of these. He shares, and, and he's, he's anointed of God, but he concludes and he says, we believe this is the place. Okay, they believe this is the place where Jesus was buried and crucified and resurrected. But they said, but we don't know that to be for sure, but what really matters is that you know Him in your heart, okay? So it's powerful. So they, they, they kind of give a disclosure that maybe if it's not, it doesn't matter in that sense. What matters is really what's in your heart. But I, I, in the process of the shade, there's something I want you to see today. We've got to follow this in trail. Now stay with me for just a few minutes. I want to share with you real quickly some additional thoughts for just a moment because there's another thought that others are starting to bring forward in, in, in their study of archaeology and the study of the land and the study of the scripture that may actually, you know, actually um, might... Choose another spot but before we get there let me just go over real quickly a couple of thoughts real quickly of some arguments each side makes an argument against the other and then there's some additional arguments that may actually disqualify both let's pick up first of all the traditional side of the church of the Holy Sepulchre and so let me give you just this historical information very quickly you say pastor I'm supposed to be painting me a, 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 a picture I will if you'll stay with me the original temple that was dedicated to Venus by Hadrian was supposedly because of his hatred for the Christians However, there's evidence that's surfacing today that his hatred was not for the Christians, his hatred was for the Jews. And that rather than actually desecrate a holy site to the Christian people, he actually desecrated a holy site to the Jewish people. One of the sites that was very, a site of great prominence to the Jewish people of that day was the site of a high priest that had died as a result of his uh, standing against Roman occupation. His name is John I probably won't be able to pronounce it. Hyrcanus. Dr. Brassel, can you say that? Hyrcanus, that's close enough. And so that site was mentioned four times by Josephus as a site that the Jews held in great, you know, uh, great uh, uh, appreciation. And so there's a thought that now that Hadrian was not desecrating a Christian site, he was desecrating a Jewish site. And rather than them worshiping over at the tomb, uh, if he went back to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre over of Jesus' tomb, but it was actually the tomb of John, the high priest. So that's just one thought. There's others I'll share with you in just a moment. Second, Gordon's Calvary, the one that we visited, this one right here, has actually been proven by some anyhow that the tomb identified as the tomb of Jesus is dated about 700 years prior to the time of Christ and it was not therefore a newly hewn tomb as you read in the scriptures. Joseph of Arimathea gave up his, are y'all with me? His newly hewn tomb, you remember that? And the images of the face of the skull. Can you go back to that image just real quickly? The images of the face of the skull right here. If you look at a picture from the, when he first saw it, it looked quite a bit different. It did look much more like the face of the skull but erosion has taken it to where it is today in less than 100 years and oddly enough they found a sketched image of the hillside from the 1600s by a European traveler who sketched the very hillside and had no image of the facial features that you see left over today and so it's the belief of some that it's actually just simply erosion, recent erosion that has created that and was not necessarily there during the time of Jesus and so both sides though may have a passage in scripture that may actually disqualify both but begin to paint the picture that I'm wanting you to see today and they're going to post in scripture Hebrews chapter 13 verses 10 through 13 I want you to see say pastor is there any significance to the place of Jesus actual crucifixion his death and burial and resurrection well possibly there is now Hebrews 13 here's something here's a word that may actually disqualify both of these sites and we're going to talk about it and just highlight it for a moment it says we have an altar whereof they have no right to eat which serve the tabernacle 11th verse for the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned without the camp notice that without the camp therefore jesus also that he might sanctify the people with his own blood suffered without the gate 13th verse let us therefore go forth unto, let us go forth therefore unto him without the camp bearing his Reproach. Now, so ex- we know expressly by the word of God that Jesus was crucified outside the camp or outside the gate. We're going to put a map of the city of Jerusalem here just real quickly. And here's to the casual observer. First, when you're standing and looking at the city of Jerusalem, you see a wall around it, and then you notice where the the two places are. You you realize well they're they're, they're inside that wall that the wall that you could see with your natural eye. But that's not the wall that was there during the days of Jesus. Those are the walls that were built by the Turks, you know, like 500 A.D. and that kind of thing from there. But there were two sites right here. It was, what, it was Golgotha And then there was the garden tomb. Now, I'm just wanting you to see this because it's very important because the author of the book of Hebrews said that Jesus Christ died outside the gate. So if I was just standing there, a casual observer, I would see, and I would see that, well, these are within the walls that I'm seeing today, but then we learned that there were actual walls of Jesus' uh, time, and both of these sites are outside of those walls, but it's outside the camp that you can't overlook. There's something that has to be considered outside the camp, outside the camp. The Bible says specifically that they had an altar to eat, that those that served the tabernacle could not eat. The bodies of those beasts that were burned were burned outside the camp. Jesus also, bearing his reproach, died for us outside the gate, outside the camp. And so let me put together a picture image for you just a moment to share something with you, okay? It's very important that you catch this because it's gonna become clear. Right now I'm like that. Did anybody remember from PBS, the days when that guy with that nice hairdo used to draw that picture? Bob Ross, wasn't he awesome? Huh? He was like painting and you're like, What is that? What is that? So I'm kinda like him today, because you're like, What what are you talking about, Pastor? I don't see this just yet. I don't know what you're, you're talking about how exciting this is. It's not really that exciting just yet. Stay with me. Stay with me. We'll add a lovely tree soon. <laughs> right on, you remember that? We're gonna add a lovely tree in here in just a minute of time. Outside the gate is an important scripture. It's taken from the book of Hebrews. The author, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, said Jesus Christ died outside the gate. Now, if you're familiar with the Hebrew culture and you, uh, and you study this out, outside the gate didn't just mean outside the wall. I mean outside the camp. Outside the camp was understood to the Hebrew people of the first century as to the set cubits that were allowed by the Sanhedrin who ruled from a place known as the... the, uh, the, the what is it called? The place of hewn stone, I think it is. And it was, this right here is the temple courtyard area and it was kind of east and it was kind of northeast of that area. During the days of the exodus of the children of Israel and the journeys in the wilderness, there was the Ark of the Covenant and God said, I want you to stay back from that Ark at least 2,000 feet. Or excuse me, 2,000 cubits. A cubits approximately 18 inches, so it's about 3,000 feet. And so when they actually built the temple, the Sanhedrin said, we're going to adopt that model. And so any of these sacrifices that they're referring to, they're referring to as sacrifices that happened on the Day of Atonement where the bodies of the bullocks and the goats that were offered in the temple, the blood was applied to the most holy place at the, in the uh, Ark of the Covenant, but the bodies would not be burned on the normal, what we would call the brazen altar, the familiar place. They would have to be burned outside the camp. Well, the Sanhedrin, the Sanhedrin established that same Order, that same process, that 2,000 cubits, 3,000 feet. And 3,000 feet from this area here would disqualify both places here, both of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre and the Garden Tomb. And so if you keep that true to that vein right there, then it's possible that neither one of these two places where Christians have worshipped at for hundreds of years are actually worshipping at the place where Jesus was crucified. But there's another thought that's began to emerge, and this is so important, we've got to begin to see this, and it's that we're the possible place that Jesus Christ was crucified. We weren't shared this at all during the time that I was in Israel, but I think it's important that we'll... Capture it, I'm going to share it with you in just a moment. It's an important place because there's another verse of Scripture that you need to see right here that possibly can validate this other place. If we go to the Scripture here if you can. It's in Matthew 27, verses 51-54. So here's something that took place the time that Jesus was crucified. Behold, the veil of the temple was torn and twain from top to the bottom, and the earth did quake and the rocks did rend. 52nd verse, the graces were opened and many bodies of the saints which slept arose. 53rd verse and there came out of the graves after his resurrection went into the holy city and appeared unto many unto many now when the centurion and they that were with him watching Jesus saw the earthquake and those things that were done they feared greatly saying truly this man was the son of God let's stop and capture that if we can for just a moment you familiar with what I just shared with you stay with me I'm just familiar with that experience Jesus is crucified by a Roman centurion who's watched and observed certain events take place such as rocks quaking such as the veil of the temple being rent in twain from top to bottom we have been taught and we preached about it in days come by that that was the, the veil that was separating the holy place and the most holy place. Hebrews calls that the second veil. See, there was another veil that was in front of the doors to the temple. These are large veils, a large veil that was mentioned by Josephus uh, in his writings. And it took up to 20 men to open these veils, this veil. It was so heavy. And so you can't really see it right there, but it would have been right there. There was a veil, the first veil. The second veil was inside the, the temple, inside the holy place, separating the holy place from the most holy Holy place there's only one place then that the centurion the bible says that the centurion when jesus christ pillowed his head and gave up the ghost that there was uh, that that he saw he saw an earthquake and he saw the veil being rent in twain well if the both of the places that we mentioned previously one is over here and the other one is right here how many of you know that you could not see that veil being rent if you were back here or right here right So there's one possible place that would give you... Go back to the other one for just a minute before we go back to this one. There's one possible place that would give you the ability to look down and see those events. And it's a familiar place to us. It's the Mount of Olives. It's the Mount of Olives that from that position there that the Roman centurion... When he sees Jesus Christ, pillow his head, crying out, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And he gives up the ghost and the response of the earth as the earth begins to shake and rocks rent in twain and there's a mighty earthquake and he sees with his own eyes the veil rent from top to bottom, the outer veil, not the inner veil, not the second veil, but the veil of the door of the temple. He He cries out, Truly! This man must be the Son of God. Show that next image. And this is a picture of what it would look like in that location where he could see over the eastern wall and he could see that veil being torn and it tore something in his heart for he knew that this truly must be the Son of God. Amen. So it's a thought that has begun to emerge among some that possibly the two sites that the church has worshipped at for hundreds of years is not the site. Maybe there's another site altogether. Well, let me see if I can affirm that for just a moment and then take you to the very purpose. I'll be through with my introduction. I'll be right into my sermon here in just a minute. Remember what John said? John said the place that they would bring him was called the place of a skull. It was called Golgotha. You and I also know it as Calvary place in the Hebrew it says called Golgotha. And Golgotha actually in the Hebrew means a head. And the word calvary or the uh, skull in the, in, the, uh, in the Greek is actually cranium and it means a scale as well but it, perhaps some believe that it actually means not the full facial side of the skull but the top of a skull. And so what there are those that believe that when John was referencing that, that, that it was Golgotha the place of a head. It was a knoll, a top place on the Mount of Olives. Just a knoll at the highest place but outside the gate beyond the two thousand cubits where Jesus Christ was crucified. He was actually crucified outside the gate that somewhere there high on that famous hillside the hillside of of the Mount of Olives where they could observe and look down it was there that Jesus Christ died now there's other things altogether some people believe that when it was called the place of a skull it had absolutely nothing to do with the rocks or the hillside or anything did you know that there are some that believe it was called the place of a skull it's because they believe that it was actually there on that hillside that they had taken the very skull of Adam and buried it did you know there's Ancient writings, ancient writings suggest this, that Noah took the body of Adam with him on the ark, preserved it, and after they land on the new earth that's been created, he gave it to Shem. He gave the body of Shem to bury it. And he, he along with Melchizedek, buried it in the city of Jerusalem. And it was actually buried on the hillside to which Jesus was crucified, the place of a skull. Now that seems a strange to us, doesn't it? Does that seem a little bit odd? You can go back and look at some of the ancient writings from the Renaissance, or the Renaissance period and you'll see many of those images of the cross. You would see at the base of it, you would see a skull because they're sharing that theology. Now that seems as strange to us, but how many of you know that David, the Bible plainly says that David took the head of Goliath back to Jerusalem and buried it in a hillside? Now wouldn't it be just like God? Wouldn't it be just like God to put his son on the hillside where the head of Adam is buried because his blood would atone for the sins of men, the place of a skull, and also where Jesus Christ would be triumphant over the seed of Satan, which is what Goliath represented. I don't know. I'm just telling you those are different thoughts where people have arrived at their conclusions. I'm not preaching it conclusively. I'm just telling you So it's a thought that's, that's, that's kind of out there today. Another thought is, is that it's the word place that John mentioned in John chapter number 19. is called topos in the Greek. And it's actually referred to in other passages as the temple, as the temple itself. So what some people believe that when he's referring, he said Jesus was taken to a place near the city, but to a place. The place meant it was not the temple, but was, uh, it belonged to the temple. Well, if that's the case, so let's just kind of factor this all together for just a moment. And then I want to start putting this picture together so that you can see. There are those that are beginning to believe that Jesus was crucified on the Mount of Olives for two primary reasons. Number one, because it was beyond the border of, of the 2,000 cubits. Therefore, he would be allowed to be outside the gate, fulfilling the law of Moses outside the camp. But there, there was another place that had special interest to the Jewish people. It was called the Mifkad Altar. The Mifkad Altar it was an altar that was outside The gate, and that's what I want to talk to you about because it was a very important place to Jewish culture, and if you begin to see it, you'll see it the way that I see it, and it'll light a fire in your soul that nothing, no religion or anything can put out because I see Jesus in it. I see Jesus. The Mifcat altar was a very important place. It was there on that altar that not only were the bodies of the animals that were sacrificed on the Day of Atonement burned, but there was a special offering to the Hebrew people that you have heard very little about, but you may hear more about in the future. It's called the offering of the red heifer. Have you ever heard about that, but really don't know much about it? Can I take just a few minutes to talk to you about it today? Because there's the image that you've got to see. You've got to see. Numbers 19 gave a very special sacrifice to the children of Israel. It was so important. It was a sacrifice to them. This sacrifice was right here. Let me explain it to you. We're not going to go there for the sake of time. Now, remember, I'm talking about looking at, the, looking at the law, looking at the law intently. I want to look at it intently. I want to look through it. I want to see through it. I don't want to just see it. I want to look through it. I'm, I want to see it's an image. It's a shadow. It's going to show me something. I'm not just looking at it what it meant to the Jew. I'm looking at it what it means to me. So, the Mifkat altar... an altar that was established by Moses during the days of the Exodus that was carried forward into the practices of Judaism where they would burn the bodies of two of the most important sacrifices that were offered to the children of Israel. And that was the Day of Atonement, the bodies of the bullock and the goat that once sacrificed their bodies would be burned on that altar but also a very special sacrifice called the sacrifice of the red heifer. And this sacrifice would go this way. They would bring a heifer of approximately the age of three years to the priest. And the priest would examine this heifer. The high priest himself would examine it. And if it was proven to be without blemish, if it was without yoke, never having a yoke laid upon it, then it could be chosen to be the sacrifice. They would then take that heifer and they would leave from the... The Temple area and they would go through the eastern gate of Jerusalem and they would cross go back to that pre- that previous picture real quickly if you can and they would cross right here this is bridge and this is just a portrait that somebody's drawn they would walk this long road and they'd cross the Kidron Valley and they would then thereby go to some place in a direct line where they could see into the temple where they could see into the temple and they would take that living red heifer. Now you say, Pastor, this is brutal what you're going to talk about. I know it is. But they would take that red heifer and they would take it and they would they would bind it. They would face its head one direction and they would slay it right there beside that, that altar. In the, actually on that altar, they would slay it. Then the priest would take his blood and he would sprinkle the blood of the heifer back towards the holy place, back towards the temple seven times. Then they would take that heifer and they would light wood on fire on the altar and they would burn that heifer whole. And as that heifer was burning whole, they would toss in three things. They would toss in cedar wood, they would toss in scarlet, and they would toss in hyssop. And they would allow it to burn in its entirety. And once it burned in its entirety, they would take of the ashes that were left They would gather all the ashes up and they would put it in a basin and then they would put it in a sieve and sift it and then they would take the pure ashes of the red heifer along with the wood, along with the hyssop and and along with the scarlet. It was all burned together as ashes and those ashes were so important to the children of Israel, so important because without it, without it, they would not be able to accomplish all the requirements of the Mosaic Law because it, had, it was known as a sin sacrifice. It was known as the fourth of the sin sacrifices, but it was one of the most important because it was the purification from death. Purification from death. Because what they were instructed to do by the priests is this right here. They were instructed to take those ashes and take living water. And so if a member of your family died and they're in your household... And they die right there. And you've got to take them out. And you carry grandma or you carry grandpa to the graveyard. And once you put them in the graveyard, according to the Mosaic Law, you are now unclean. And you've got to live outside the camp for seven days. Even if you didn't carry grandma out, if you just went into the tent where she died, you're unclean. If you're in the field and a battle takes place, and there's a dead body, and you touch the body, you're unclean for seven days. If you see a bone laying on the ground, and you pick it up, and it's the bone, a human bone, you are unclean for seven days. When John went to the sepulcher of Jesus and would not go in, he would not go in because if he went in, he's unclean, and he'd be unclean for seven days. The whole nation was surrounded by death, in essence. There was a fear of death. That's what the parable of the of the good Samaritan. Remember, the priest and the Levite saw the man laying there and didn't want to touch him. Why didn't they want to touch? Because they would be unclean. Does that make sense? And so, the way to be clean was to take the ashes of the red heifer and running water or living water. And the Mishnah, the Hebrew uh, writings, say that just enough ashes to move the surface of the water would be sprinkled on the water. They would then take hyssop, dip hyssop in the water. If Shane's unclean, the priest would sprinkle him on the third day. Now, all this time, he's living outside the camp. Candace and the kids are inside the camp, he's outside the camp. He didn't do anything necessarily wrong, but he just carried Grandma out to the funeral, to the burial place, but now he's unclean. And so on the seventh day to complete the purification offering, they would once again, they would once again take the hyssop, sprinkle him on the seventh day and pronounce him clean. It's a powerful thing we're going to talk about in just a moment. That red heifer sacrifice was so important to ancient Israel. Let me give you just a little bit of a background on it if I can for just a moment of time. There have been nine red heifers that have been offered in the history of the nation. The first one was by Eliezer the priest, which was established by Moses in the days of the Exodus. The second one was by Ezra during the days of the Reformation. And from the time of the Reformation to the time of Christ, there were seven red heifers offered. And whenever their bodies were offered, they were offered on that altar that was at the end of that long bridge that was there on the Mount of Olives in full view of the temple so that they could sprinkle the blood seven times towards the holy place and then capture the dust. And the Mishnah, the writings of the Hebrews, believe that the Messiah, when he comes, he will offer the tenth red heifer. Now, oddly enough, what's kind of unique about this whole story is this right here. What's unique about this whole thing is is that, that during the time of the destruction of the temple of Jerusalem between 66 A.D. and 70 A.D., when they were surrounded by the Roman army and they began to realize that perhaps they are cursed of God in one sense, in essence, that God has withdrawn his presence, they authorized the slaying of a tenth red heifer in some measure to appease and get the attention of God. So they gave authorization to slay a tenth red heifer. They brought the heifer to the priest in the temple, and then they began to lead the red heifer out to the altar. The mitzvah, the 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 the, what did I say? It is say it again. Mitzvah. Never mind. The altar that's out there on the Mount of Olives. They were bringing it out there, and en route, the red heifer gives birth. Now, a heifer is not, in essence, a virgin cow. Three years of age. She gives birth, but she gives birth. Josephus records she gives birth to a lamb. And Jews to this very day, you know, there's a big stirring right now about building the temple back in Jerusalem. They know there's one thing that they need they've got to have a red heifer because everybody's touched death, and death has touched everybody. And they're waiting. Did you know there was a stirring in the world in 2002 when inside the borders of Israel, A red heifer was born again, Larry. Not born again, like we were talking about. For the first time in 2,000 years within the borders of Israel, a red heifer was born. That the priest examined and found her to be ritually pure, Brother David. But about three years later, two years later, she became soiled, blemished. She grew black and white hair and was disqualified. And they wait with bated breath. They wait with bated breath for this red heifer because without it, nobody can be clean because everybody's touched death and death has come to everybody. But what they're overlooking is they're looking for the real in the shadow because the red heifer didn't hold the antidote for touching death, but the one who would come and who would die perhaps just above that sacrificial altar on that fateful day was the one that had the ability to destroy death and deliver all of us from the bondage of death who by all of our life we've been held in bondage to it. You say, Pastor Brown, and I'm going to ask Aaron to join me on the platform today. What are you talking about? Every sacrifice of ancient Israel had its fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. From the turtle dove to the lamb to the bullock and to the goat and the red heifer was no exception. Let me take just a moment to tell you about the red heifer. You say, Pastor, how does that relate to me? It relates to you this way. Because they took my Jesus bound and they brought him before the high priest, and the high priest looked closely at him and he found him to be worthy of death. He would not slay him, but he would hand him over to someone else to be slain. He wouldn't die in the walled city, the old city of Jerusalem. He would be taken outside the gate, outside the camp to die. You say, Pastor, what does that mean? Why is that merit anything that should be mentioned this Sunday morning? Because had he died inside the, the walls, then the Jews could have said he's our sacrifice and our Savior alone. But when he died outside the walls, uh, then he said, I'm dying for the black man. I'm dying for the white man. I'm dying for the European. Uh, I'm dying for every person. Are y'all hearing me? That has ever been born, I'm dying. My sacrifice is one sacrifice forever. Glory to God. It's a powerful image. And you can remember you say but now wait just a minute if that's the type that was fulfilled in Jesus uh, then what about all the issues and all the things that happened on that fateful day just like they brought that red heifer uh, and they crossed uh, that valley if possible that they carried Jesus the very same route uh, you remember the what happened on the sacrifice of the red heifer that seemed a little bit odd to you and it was the Bible says that they were to take hyssop uh, they were to take cedar wood and they were to take red scarlet. I remember reading the word of God and I found out that before they brought Jesus to that hillside called Golgotha that the Roman soldiers stripped him of his cloak and they put a scarlet robe on him and when he did I believe that that was the first step to again providing the three necessary things to make this the true red heifer that had been foreshadowed and it brought to life the writing of Isaac. Isaiah. But when they put that scarlet robe on Jesus, Isaiah said, though my sins were as scarlet, they shall be white like wool. Though my sins, come on somebody, are red like crimson, they're gonna be white as snow. And when they put that robe on him, they were putting my sins on the red heifer that would die in my stead so that I could have life and life more abundantly. Glory to God. Then they laid an old wooden beam very possibly a cedar a cedar board over his shoulder and he carried it outside the city and they nailed him to that beam and they lifted him up suspended between heaven and earth and it was there to fulfill the fullest order of the sacrifice that Jesus said I thirst and when he thirsted The Roman soldier said, Well, I got a sponge, but I'm down here and he's up there. I need a branch to reach the sponge to his mouth. He could have found any branch, but the Bible plainly says he found a hyssop branch. And he took a hyssop branch poked it in the sponge, filled it with vinegar, and put it to the lips of Jesus. And when Jesus said he had taken it, he said, it is finished. Glory to God. He had fulfilled the requirement of the red heifer. And now you and I do not have to fear death or the effect of death. We don't have to be declared unclean because of anything we've touched. We're not waiting on the ashes of a red heifer to be discovered somewhere in Israel. We know today that Jesus Christ destroyed death and its ability to control our lives. Glory to God. Hallelujah. The shadow, the image, the image. I could go on and on for the sake of time. Did you know they, I will not, but they were supposed to have a clean person come and take the ashes up and gather them up. It was a just man, the Bible says. Joseph of Arimathea took his body Down from the tree, laid it in a clean place. The writer of Hebrews said these things are but a picture. They're but a picture. So that when you and I read those things and see those things, we're seeing the image of Jesus, a red heifer. I don't know if they'll ever find, I don't know if another red heifer will be born. I don't know. I don't know. Will they find one? Will they build a temple? Will they offer? I I don't know. I can't tell you what's going to happen to Israel in that sense, but I can tell you that God's red heifer's already been offered, Shane. He's already been offered. And, and wouldn't it be, what, what, just what if? I know this is kind of legend. I don't know. But, but wouldn't it be just like God to have put that cross right on the hillside, the place of a skull, right adjacent to the altar, where the red heifer would die, just the invisible side of it, invisible side of the temple, on a hill called the place of a skull, where potentially two skulls were buried. the skull of Goliath, who represented the seed of Satan, the seed of Satan, because he was of the giants. Genesis says that was of the seed of Satan, and Adam's skull, to destroy the seed of the serpent. And to allow the atoning blood of Jesus Christ to cleanse the sins of men. And the writer in Hebrew says that he died to deliver us from the fear of death. The fear of death. The fear of death. The ashes of the red heifer. So put this verse of scripture if we can. Let me put this in. i am close in with this. I've probably preached a long time. I know I have. I'm about 45 minutes in. I would like to put this one scripture verse. And let's close. Hebrews 10 and 13 and 14. Let's read this together. Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10, 13 and 14 if we can. That's not it. Chapter 9. I'm sorry. Chapter 9, 13 and 14. Let's read it. I'm sorry. You were right. I was wrong. Hebrews 9, 13 and 14. If we can gather that one just real quickly because I want you to read it. For the blood of bulls and the goats... Remember, he said it was a shadow. It was an image. It was a picture. The blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer could sprinkle the unclean and sanctify to the purifying of their flesh. So if Shane the Jew had got uncle- became unclean because he carried grandma... I hope you don't have a grandma that dies recent, in the near time, near future, because that would be a bad omen. I want to say that. But carried a dead person from his family. He's unclean. Candace is in. Out. She's got to do all the work now because Shane can't come to his job because he's unclean. He's got to live outside. Now, church family, come on, that'll make a Baptist shout right there. How much more, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who the eternal spirit, offer himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works that you can serve the living God you can serve the living God the very instruments that you used to sin with now you can serve with come on somebody because of the fulfillment of the type that Jesus Christ completed on the cross of Calvary when he died invisible possibly in the place of the death of the red heifer how much more telling you his death is sufficient our heads are bowed our eyes closed in this room today how many of you here today say pastor I've struggled with my consciousness of sin I've struggled I've struggled perhaps you've even got sin in your own life today you say I just want to be free what can I do you trust in the blood of Jesus you repent of your sins and you trust in the Lord If you're here today you're here today and you say I'm going to give a two fold altar call today first of all and you're here and you say pastor today What would take away this blot of sin in my life? What would make me go from unclean to clean, from unholy to holy, from unrighteous to unrighteous? Is it a work that I can do? Is it a song that I can sing? Is it a journey that I can make? It's faith in Christ. Faith in Jesus Christ. Faith in Christ. You repent of your sins. You believe in Jesus. Is there anybody among us today that said, Pastor, I need that cleansing stream of the blood of Jesus to wash me clean today in this room? Is there anyone at all? Anyone at all? Thank you. I see that hand. Thank you so much. Thank you. Secondly, secondly, is there anybody here that's ever struggled with that consciousness of sin and that bound to dead works? And today you need to know that you're free to serve the living God. Maybe you've been woke up in the middle of the night like Jojo with grief and condemnation over an experience that happened 10 years ago. Let me tell you, God will purge that all out of your mind that you can serve the living God. The washing of water of the word will wash wash it away. Who here today say, Pastor, I've struggled with that in my life today, and I need to be cleansed today. Come on. I need to know. I need to know. I need to know. His blood, His blood was sufficient. Some hands have gone up. I'm going to ask everyone to stand. We're going to pray a closing prayer. One person raised their hand. One person raised their hand when it concerns praying a prayer about sin in their life. This is a very serious moment and I want to ask you to be very serious with me for the next few minutes of time. I've done my very best to take you on a journey that took me hours to arrive at but I kind of condensed it and shared it with you. Hopefully in my excitement you've been able to at least see what I saw, at least some image. When I learned about how this ancient sacrifice was actually the fulfillment of, it was, the, or it was in anticipation of the fulfillment that Jesus Christ's blood and his death on the cross would provide. How that it leaves me whole and clean when I believe in it. I don't have to go to a priest and be sprinkled with this holy water, that holy water. I, by faith, trust in Jesus Christ. Does that make sense today? You that raised your hand, let's bow our heads and let's pray. Let's pray. It's very important right now. You that raised your hand. This is an important moment. Don't be in such a hurry that I can't pray with people today. Right now, it would be wrong. You raised your hand and you said, I need God. I need God to wash away my sins right now. Pray a prayer with me. It, may, it was one person, church, that raised their hand that said, I believe that means to accept Christ and his blood. Father, today, we pray with that one person. Right now, we join our faith to theirs this day In Jesus' name. To pray. We repent of our sins today, God. We repent. Meaning we turn from those sins. We acknowledge them and we turn from them. And we look to you, Lord Jesus. We believe that you died and you were raised again for my sins. You died and you're raised again for my life. Today, Lord, I believe in Jesus Christ. Are you praying that, sir, ma'am? Are you praying that one that raised your hand? Are you praying that today? Would you trust in the Lord, Lord? I confess and I believe. I confess and I believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and my Savior, one sacrifice for sin forever. You've forgiven me today. Today, Lord, I'm holy and completely yours in Jesus' name. But now several hands went up with the consciousness of sin, the consciousness. You felt like you were outside the camp hoping to get back in, and you needed somebody to do this and somebody to do that, I want you to know it's already been done. It's already been done. By faith, you just trust in the blood of Jesus and God will deliver you and your consciousness from dead works that you can serve the living God. Yes, you can. You feel guilty. You feel guilty. Listen, if you've confessed your sin, then they're forgiven you by the blood of Jesus. There's nothing more than you can do than to believe, believe, believe know that you're clean know that you're clean and you can serve the living God I pray my prayers for every man and every woman though there weren't many but there were some God that raised their hand you saw them you know their struggle God you know the things that they wrestle with Father in the name of Jesus take that fear of death and that bondage to dead works away from them God so that they can be free to serve you Lord Father, without a guilty conscience, but with the conscience that's been cleansed by the washing of water of the Word, by the finished work of the blood of Christ on the cross of Calvary. Father, that we can serve you with all of our heart, mind, and our emotions. And I pray one closing prayer in this room with every man and every woman, every boy and girl under the sound of my voice today. Lord, I pray that in the days ahead, that when we read through the book of Numbers, we will read the book of Leviticus and we see those types and shadows, God. I pray that we will see through them until we see Jesus. That's the finished work of the atoning sacrifice. The bullock, the goat, and now the red heifer all points and paints the image of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. And may our gaze be so affixed upon that redemptive work that our lives are whole and clean. We live with joy, unspeakable joy and the song said full of glory, a hope and a peace that resounds in our hearts and our minds, God. Father, we thank you, Lord, for this word today though I've been long in preaching it. I pray, God, that it's been marked burned into the mind and in the recesses of memory of those that have heard and they'll know with the certainty that Jesus Christ fulfilled the type of the death of the red heifer and that now their conscience is cleared and clean from dead works to serve the living God. In Jesus' blessed name, I pray. If you got anything at all out of this message today, put your hands together and bless the Lord. Thank you so much for being in God's house. Such a privilege.